Please stand as you're able for the re today's reading from the Old Testament, from the book of Exodus, chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Is Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The total number of poor people born to Jacob was 70. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and that whole generation. But the Israelites were fruitful, and they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase, and in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply cities, Pithom and Ramses, for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians subjected the Israelites to hard servitude and made their lives bitter with hard servitude in mortar and bricks and in every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks that they imposed on them. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. My name is Davis Chapel. Um, I'm one of the pastors here at Brentwood. Uh, for those of you who may not know or those who may have forgotten, uh, let me say what a joy it is to be home and to be in worship with each of you. We've missed you, we've prayed for you, and we're grateful for you. Thank you. Ryan, thank you, Casey, uh, all who have led us in worship. Um, it is good to be home. Also want to thank, thank for just a moment my colleagues in ministry, our associates, uh, Ani, Jonathan, Casey, Adam, Jim, and Dominic, uh, who have preached for us during these last few weeks. Uh, it is, uh, I hope you know how blessed we are in our clergy team. We're so grateful to all of you. In fact, uh, one of you, one of our men, called me last week and asked would I cons consider becoming a full-time liturgist and leave the preaching to the associates? Uh, but just to let you know, I don't acquiesce to all of Bishop Pennell's ideas. And so um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful uh, for the time apart, particularly uh, to a community, to a church that understands the occasional need uh, to study, uh, to read, to travel, to rest, uh, to play with my grandson. I don't know if you're aware we have a grandson. I think you perhaps have heard that. Um, in fact, my mother called me last week and said one of her uh, Sunday school classmates, she's a member here, called and said, do you think that Davis will remember how to preach? And I said, well, mother, what did you say? And she said, I sure hope so. And I said, thanks, mom. <laughs> uh, we took 60 of our people to Oberammergau uh, the second, third week in July to see the Passion Play. Some of you, how many of you have actually seen the Passion Play? Many of you have, and it was absolutely remarkable. Uh, the best thing about it was we brought back everybody that we took, and for that we're grateful, albeit uh, about half of us came back with COVID, uh, but this is as close to normal uh, as we have been, I think, in, in the last bit and it's a joy to be in worship with you. Well, you know, if you read the e-note this week, that we're starting this new series uh, today called 
deliverance. The curriculum for this particular series over the next 11 weeks is the book of Exodus. It's the second book in the Torah which describes the key event, the central event in the life of the Hebrew people, which is the liberation and deliverance of the chosen ones from Egyptian bondage and oppression. Uh, Amy Steelstra, who is a part of our communications team, has done this incredible slide. She's, she's created this slide as a part uh, of our theme. In fact, she took dirt from her backyard and put it in the mountains that you see there. And it's a beautiful rendition that depicts our series that we're gonna spend the next couple of months on. Exodus follows, of course, the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, the first book in the Torah, which concludes, as you know, in chapter 50 with the Joseph story. Joseph, one of the 12 sons of Jacob, you remember, was sold into slavery by his brothers. He was incarcerated on false charges in Egyptian until his gift, his spiritual gift of interpreting dreams brought him before the Pharaoh. And you know the rest of the story. Joseph predicted the famine and convinced Pharaoh to stockpile his crops for seven years. And when the drought did occur, as he predicted, not only was the nation of Egypt saved, but the surrounding regions where his family lived were also saved. And they relocate to Egypt where they're given prime real estate on the east side of the Nile Delta in a place that we call Goshen. Exodus 1-7 says, and I quote, they were fruitful and prolific, they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with the Israelites, thus fulfilling God's creative purpose in Genesis 1, verse 28. But between verse 7 and verse 8 in Exodus 1, 400 years pass, four centuries. The family continues to expand exponentially, but then in verse 8, the whole story takes a downward turn with this sentence. Now there arose a new king in Egypt who did not remember Joseph. And with that one line, with that one sentence, the whole story goes south. And I want to talk about, in this introductory message on deliverance, about that verse. I want to suggest to you that memory is vital to life. Remembering is crucial to our faith. It was Aristotle who said it like this, memory is the scribe of the soul. Oscar Wilde said memory is the diary that we carry within us. I'm losing you, so let me share another quote from a favorite theologian, Dr. Seuss, (laughs) who said, and I quote, you will never know the value of a moment until it becomes a memory. And there arose a new king in Egypt who did not remember Joseph. Not only, I think, is memory crucial to life and to faith, I think it's critical to leadership. Whether we're talking about political leadership or religious leadership, governance, 
a ruler who is ignorant of the details of his own history is a frightening thing. Warren Buffett once said, what we learn from history is that people don't learn from history. A generation that ignores history soon will lose its past and its future. And maybe it's just me, but when I read chapter 1, verse 8, I think to myself, surely Joseph, of all people, at least is worthy of a footnote <laughs> in Egyptian antiquity. Because without Joseph, there is no Egypt. Without Joseph, there is no interpretation of Pharaoh's dream. Without Joseph, there's a famine, there's a drought, and Egypt is extinct. But there arose a leader who did not remember Joseph. And so when I read that verse, I think to myself, what's going on here? And, and maybe it's one of two possibilities. There may be more. Uh, do you suppose that when this Pharaoh was a little Pharaoh, that he was sick on the day the teacher mentioned the famine? Could be. There's a second possibility. Maybe, just maybe, the Egyptian teachers' union deleted that part of the curriculum because it didn't fit the narrative that they were propagating. Uh, of course, it never happens today, but it happened then. That when the syllabus or the curriculum becomes overly politicized, we tend to get a rather limited view, maybe, of history. My history, but not your history. I was studying while I was gone Egyptian history, and it's interesting to me that historically, in Egyptian history, the Jews are not directly mentioned in their texts and records, in their monuments. And yet to me, that's not really surprising because the Exodus was disastrous for Egypt. Egyptian records are, of course, as often is the case, pro-Egyptian completely. And the Egyptians were notorious for their propaganda. So it's no wonder that these countercultural stories from the underside of history were omitted from the record. After all, it's been said, and it's true, that history is written from the winner's point of view, right? So that when two cultures clash, typically the loser is disremembered, and the winner writes the history books, and typically they're documents that glorify the victor and disparage the foe. It was Napoleon who once asked and answered his own question when he said, what is history but a fable agreed upon? And I may be wrong about this. You disagree with me, it's okay. You've been wrong before. But it's a miracle of God to me that the Torah still exists. It's a miracle of God to me that our Jewish forebears still exist because the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, is the minority report from a marginalized perspective from the losers. It's the slave's point of view. I think the new Pharaoh had developed what Eugene Peterson calls historical amnesia. In other words, he disregards what doesn't fit with his own narrative. One of the books that I read while I was away, I have mentioned in my e-note, 
uh, was written by a psychologist and professor named Jonathan Haidt. Uh, he's written two books. The most recent book is The Coddling of the American Mind. But this particular book is called The Righteous Mind. You can see the subtitle, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. And in the book, Dr. Haidt makes a rather intriguing comment about our contemporary culture. This is what he says. We have become largely groupish in our perspectives. In matters of public opinion and faith, our citizens seem to be asking themselves not what's in it for me, but what's in it for my group. Political opinions function as badges of social membership, like the array of bumper stickers on our cars that show our political causes, our universities, our sports teams, go titans that we support. And such groupishness, says Height, leads to attitude polarization to the point where we can no longer relate or even associate to others who are not in my group. And says Dr. Haidt, such attitudes not only infect our policies, they infect our faith community. And then he says something that I can't get past. He said, every one of us, perhaps because of our fallen nature, every one of us have an inner press secretary in our heads that even when I'm wrong, I can explain to you what I did wrong was actually right." End of quote. Well, I've gone to meddling now, so let me get back to the text. I'm not sure that the new Pharaoh was cognitively ignorant of Joseph. I rather think he intentionally, purposely deleted Joseph from the record because it didn't fit his narrative, his group. It still happens. There are numerous modern examples. In fact, we saw one recently in Alex Jones, where if there is an event that contradicts our perspective, we just deny that the event ever happened. Sandy Hook never happened. The Holocaust never happened. We erase it from our minds or we rewrite it as history. I'm thinking now of George Orwell. Uh, you remember George Orwell from high school and college. You read 1984. You read Animal Farm. I called it Animal House at 830. I've been corrected. He said, and I quote, the most effective way to destroy people is to deny and obliterate their own understanding of their own history. And then he says something that sticks with me. It is frightful, he says, that people who are so ignorant should have so much influence. It's very convicting. The historical amnesia of a new king tends to lead to fear, insecurity, oppression, enslavement, and eventually genocide, all for the benefit of Egypt and to the detriment of this growing minority of chosen children of God. But here's the gospel. You ready for that? Here's the gospel according to Exodus. Even when earthly leaders forget, God remembers. God never forgets his promises. 
God does not abandon his own. God cannot and will not by his nature renege on his covenant. God remembers even when we forget. I mentioned the story goes south at Exodus 1.8 with Pharaoh's forgetfulness. It takes a redemptive turn in Exodus 2.24. Here it is. And God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Deliverance in this story, in the prelude, begins with memory. Remembering is so vital, so critical to faith, that if you're counting in the Old and New Testament, you see the word memory or remember 230 times. I guess it's important. Like, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Remember the rock from which you were hewn. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his benefits. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Do this in remembrance of me. There's one point in John 14 where Jesus even explains the role, the job description of the Holy Spirit. It is to bring all things to your remembrance that Jesus has said to us. Miroslav Volf is a Croatian theologian. He's at Yale University. He's written a book called The End of Memory, in which he says, and I quote, to be a Jew is to remember the Exodus. To be a Christian is to remember the death and resurrection of Christ. And then God institutes for both of those groups a means through which they will never forget One of them is called the Passover meal, the Seder, and the second is the Lord's Supper. That when we eat the bread and drink the cup, we remember, but we also reenact the truth of the gospel of forgiveness and grace. Wolf says, when we take away sacred memory, community disintegrates. And when we take away community, sacred memory disappears. It's the key to our identity. I was walking up the hallway this week and two of our workers in the Sunny Day ministry, whose role, you know, is to work with those, to love those who are suffering from memory loss. And in between these two workers was a woman, I'll call her Miss Betty. And we began to talk and she would forget what she was saying. And, and to be honest, she couldn't remember her name. But the two workers on either side were there with Miss Betty to remind her even when she forgot who she was, they were there to remind her to whom she belongs. When we don't remember, there are others who remember for us. Even when we forgot God, God remembers us. And when God remembers, God moves. When we remember, God moves in us to accomplish his purpose, especially for those most likely to be forgotten. Let me give you this example and I'm finished. I mentioned the passion play earlier. Um, I want to tell you how it all started, and many of you know this story. It's been happening for 400 years in Oberammergau. But in 1632, the Thirty Years' War, which was a war between Protestants and Catholics, was taking its toll in Europe. It's estimated 
that in the Thirty Years' War between 1618 and 1648, five to eight million citizens and soldiers died in that war, to the point that there were many towns in Germany that experienced population decline over 50 percent, one in two. Between the war and the bubonic plague, the effects were devastating in Germany and in Europe, but there was this little village in the Bavarian Alps that had been sheltered somehow from the pandemic. But when Caspar Schisler, a soldier, returned home from the battle, he unwittingly brought with him the Black Plague. And within a few days of his arrival, there were 86 people who perished. In their hour of distress, the townsfolk came together in the cathedral to have a prayer meeting. And they prayed that God would lift the burden, lift the disease from their town, and they vowed from that time on to perform a drama to reenact the passion, the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus every decade from that time on, every 10 years. The plague began to lift. And 400 years later, that village is still keeping their promise. Once every decade, people come together from all over the world to retell, to reenact, to remember the story. And this summer, they said half a million people will come into that tiny town to one of 104 performances to witness the passion, to retell the story, and to give thanks to God for a town that still remembers and still keeps its promise. I have to tell you, the irony of our visit, the 60 that we went with, was not lost on our, on our group. Because here we were, four centuries later, in another pandemic, still bearing witness of the sacred memory of God, who has not and will not forget his own. Who still hears our cry, sees our tears, remembers his promise, and still shows up to deliver us, even when earthly rulers forget, God remembers. And his remembrance is our salvation. Isaiah 49 says it clearly. Talk about a life verse, Isaiah 49, 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son, daughter of her womb? But even these may forget Yet I will not forget you, says the Lord. His memory is the beginning of our deliverance and our salvation. Thanks be to God.